The last time I opened these scriptures, I was on the Ugandan border. Quite providentially, when Graham asked me to choose this passage, uh, it was subsequently a passage that they asked me to expound. And so in a sense, this is both a privilege and a particularly sort of ironic in a, a spiritual sense. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just before he paid with his life at the end of a hangman's noose in Flossenburg jail, wrote perhaps one of the most important books he wrote called The Cost of Discipleship. And I make that point very simply because if you researched it more fully, you would find, brilliant theologian that he was, that Bonhoeffer, whose life was so tragically cut short, had a particular focus on Matthew's gospel. And obviously I've been given a long passage, as you said. But it all fits together, and I want to try and take an overview. I confess this is hard for me because what I'm going to have to do is cherry pick. There is at least five or six sermons involved in all of that, in truth, but we're going to cherry pick. Rachel and I were house parents in a previous incarnation, I'm tempted to say, about 40 odd years ago, back in Nigeria. And we used to have 35, 8 to 14 year old boys. And we always used to have to lead devotions. And we had a little phrase that we used then that's the heart of the sermon. So if you forget everything else, please take this. What you are speaks so loud, I never hear what you're saying. End of sermon. You don't believe that, neither do I. What you are speaks so loud, I don't hear what you're saying. Now, don't over-literalise it. You understand what's being said. So did Matthew. And I use that illustration for the very simple fact that when Matthew was constructing his gospel, he knew very well that he had a particular agenda. If you go to the end of the gospel, you'll find what his agenda was. He was passionately committed to the early church, understanding that Jesus didn't want followers. God spare us from followers of Jesus. He wanted disciples. And you know the difference between a follower and a disciple? A follower is a follower. It doesn't need explanation. A disciple is someone who lives under the discipline and control of Jesus. And I want to ask you a question, and I will end up here again when I've finished cherry-picking. Does what you are speak clearly so that perchance when you have the chance to speak some words, they are heard. Or is it true that frankly people don't take any notice of the words because it's not consistent with the way you live? 
and I speak to myself as I speak to you. Jesus would have been tired. Preachers get tired, especially when you've preached. When you've finished preaching, you pour out your heart and you are exhausted. Jesus had just been on the Mount of Beatitudes above Capernaum, right by the Sea of Galilee. Whether the sort of chapter 5, 6, 7 is a compilation of sermons he preached at different times, because this clearly was not something that only happened once. It was recorded once. But he records it, and then he moves down to Capernaum. Theologians tell us that Matthew moved from the words of Jesus to the works. You with me? From the words to the works. If I may say so, the words of Jesus or the words of any of us only have significance and power and authority if they are consistent with the works. That's actually what Jesus meant when he kept on talking about hypocrisy, about play-acting. Down he comes from the Mount of Beatitudes. I've stood there. I dare say John Smith was there just recently when he was in Israel. I don't know. It's about six or 700 feet up above Capernaum. And, of course, you're dropping down into that central crack that leads right down to the Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee's what, six or 700 feet below sea level. And down he comes to Capernaum. He's tired. He's been preaching. He's going down for a cup of tea, or whatever the cultural equivalent was. And you're never off duty with Jesus. And Jesus was never off duty. And on the way down... And this was taking place on the Sabbath, by the way, if you look at the parallel passage in Mark 2. All of what we heard read took place. First of all, there's the wonderful healing of the leper. Let me simply point out to you that for Matthew, including a section like that was so simple and so crucial because everything in the Old Testament about the coming of Meshua, Messiah spoke always of five different characteristics. One of them was healing of leprosy. Do you know leprosy, and I've seen leprosy in the flesh um, many, many, many times, it's one of those alienating diseases and still an issue even in Africa today and other parts of the world as well. But here comes this leper, and in the simplicity of what it was, he comes with humility, he comes with reference, he comes with confidence, which is the way you can approach Jesus because of who he is. And Jesus does something that is so important. Now, for those of us who are tactile people, this is easy, but for many of us, we're not tactile people, but Jesus does something that is so simple that you don't ever do with a leper. He touches him. Don't, psychologists will tell us this, don't underestimate the power of touch 
Now, I know you need to be very careful in these PC days, but don't underestimate the power of touch. So Jesus heals the leper. As soon as he's got there, he's still on the way down for this cup of tea that's by now getting a little bit colder. And another incident happens. This centurion turns up. It's worth actually doing a Bible study on centurions. They've got a very good track record in the Bible. There's at least 10 references to centurions. Centurions were... A legion was 6,000 men divided into centuries. So there were 60 centuries in each legion. And here's one of them. Non-commissioned officer. Very, very remarkable. Servants in those days were simply chattels. Like with women, irrelevant possession. But there was something in that man's heart of concern. And he was concerned, probably purely humanly, but still very real, because his servant was ill. And he comes to Jesus. Now, remember, this man would not have been a Jew. This man was a Gentile. And he approaches Jesus. And such a simple interchange of language. How did he know that Jesus could or would heal? I don't know. We're not told. Matthew doesn't tell us. But he just comes and asks. And he asks with simplicity and with clarity. And he shows great sensitivity. Don't want you to come away from the important work you're doing. Just speak the word. And it will be fine. My servant will be well. Because he understood something. And I wish Christians understood this in a biblical correct way. He understood about authority. Now when you travel, as I have the privilege, and I guess I'll see it in India again in January very soon, you find people who so misunderstand this issue of authority, exousia. Christians are promised power, and they are promised authority. But listen, let me tell you this passionately. Please don't misunderstand that. Those of us with psychological weaknesses, and that means every one of us here, when we're told we have authority, that can be so unhelpful if we don't understand what the nature of that authority is. Because exousia is authority under delegated accountability. It was so for Jesus. It is so for us. We have authority. But please, please understand your authority and mine. Demonstrate yourself, first of all, in submissiveness to Jesus and his direction. And don't fall into the trap. I won't tell you stories of things I've seen, of people acting in the flesh who think authority is somehow then linked to them. See, the gifts that God gives to us, all gifts are his gifts in the ultimate. So pride never comes into it. You can't think I'm an authoritative person, therefore I can be proud. Not at all. Because we have authority because we are under Jesus. And then something wonderful. 
particularly in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says to him, you understand something that's so profound for a Gentile. Many, many Jews don't understand this. They think they're still the ethnic group that have a special hotline to God, specially chosen. Graham was talking about it last week. And of course, they have a special place in the purposes of God, as the scriptures make clear. But if you look in the, and it's not in your Bible, take my word for it, it's in what we call the apocryphal material, the intertestamental period, you'll find there was a very, very clear teaching. Jesus actually did allude to it. He alluded to the Messianic feast. And this is wonderful for someone who's going to be abroad very soon. Because when I go out to India or wherever else I go, and when I'm in Bridge North or wherever else, this message is for everyone. Right? Everyone. Not limited to a different small ethnic group. Not only for men. It is for everyone. Everyone has been invited to the Messianic feast. And this centurion understood that. And the Jews had let it go. God, us, that's fine. The rest, Gentile dogs. So the servant is healed. But then you're not surprised about that, are you? Because... This centurion and Jesus knew about authority. And healing can be instantaneous. I've seen a person literally instantaneously receive their sight as I've prayed for them. I wish it had happened so many more times. It can happen. It does happen. It happens infinitely more abroad. David at the back and he had last year just about nearly this time. Well, remember the number of times we prayed for people and saw God touch them, David. Do you remember that? Well, and it's one of the mysteries of why, theological mysteries about why that happens more in the third world than in our world. I think you can guess where I might go with that one. But his, his servant is healed. I'm cherry-picking, forgive me. I hate doing this. Peter, I've been I've stood inside his house. Well, it's only stone walls now in Capernaum. And it was probably where Jesus lived when he was there. And they talk about Capernaum as Jesus' uh, home base. And as he came into the house, he's already dealt with the leper. He's already dealt with the centurion. And he's just come in for this cup of tea by... Now, it is probably cold. Don't you think so, Carol? I think it's gone cold by now. And as he comes in, he finds Peter's mother-in-law sick. What's time for a cup of tea? No. There are other things that Jesus has on his agenda. And he just simply touches her. And the fever left her, and she got up and began to do what was her culturally expected role. And we understand in these days that it's not just women who do the domestic things, but in that culture, that's the way it was. Five years ago, six years ago, before I'd come to this church, 
Uh, I was uh, one of my first trips in India up in Manipur on the uh, Myanmar border. I was speaking at the Cookie Baptist Convention. They'd asked me there because A, I was a Baptist, and B, they'd heard I was charismatic and they wanted to rip me to shreds. And they did have a good try at that. Uh, That was fine, I can hold my own. But we'd had a whole day of seminars together about the work of God and the work of the Spirit. And back we went to uh, the General Secretary's home. And I think, I think the jury was well out on me and what I was saying at that stage. And as I walked into the house, his daughter was lying sick on a couch. Sort of malarial type of fever, I guess. And I did something that I very rarely do and very rarely happen. I wish it happened more often. I had a clear sense from God that I should go and lay hands on this young woman. Culturally difficult. But the general secretary was there, and I just said to him, listen, we've been talking all day about God answering prayer and God doing this and God doing that. I just feel I'd love to pray for your daughter. May I do that? And he said, yes. So we went together, and I trying to teach him at the same time practically as well as theoretically, he went and laid hands on his daughter. And instantly, she recovered. Now, I know what God was doing. I mean, apart from graciously acting, he was teaching the General Secretary of the Cookie Baptist Convention that perchance God does do remarkable things. And dramatic things. Not all the time, please. Not all the time. But he does. And he did there with Jesus. Jesus, well, there's the two people wanting to... I didn't see what time I started, Alan. Ten to. Okay. Thank you. Jesus talks about the cost of following him. That's self-evident. Leads little explanation. But it's the heart of what I was saying to you, that Matthew is concerned about discipleship. Are you a real disciple? Are you under authority? Is that the focus of your life? What Jesus wants for you and with you. Now, I've been down by the Sea of Galilee several times in my life, and it is subject to what we call adiabatic winds that blow right down the Vale of Jezreel, from the Mediterranean, and because the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level, the wind comes sweeping along the Vale of Jezreel, drops down, and sudden storms can suddenly completely just turn the whole sea into a maelstrom of activity and fear. And you know there are several passages in the scripture that refer to Jesus being on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus calming the storm. And I simply want to point out to you without expounding it in any way that Jesus has authority over nature. Right? Hear that. Jesus has authority over nature. Nature is creation, broken, damaged, 
But Jesus still has authority. It was one of the messianic expectations, and ironically, in my own devotions this morning, purely coincidentally, I was reading Psalm 89, which is one of those passages that speak about the fact that Jesus has authority over creation. Jesus can control nature. I mustn't be sidetracked. I've got a fund of stories there about that, but I must pass on. He goes across the Sea of Galilee to the Gadarene area. A lot of debate exactly where it is. But he meets the demon possessed. I hope you've never seen a demonically possessed person because it is quite humanly scary and they can be very powerful, physically powerful. But Jesus, with the sheer simplicity, without making a great grandstand of what he was doing, simply deals with the demonic position. You might want to think about why he actually sent the demons into the pigs. You might want to think about that. Why would Jesus do that? That's your homework. Why did Jesus put and send the demons into the pigs. He could have just dealt with the demon demonic directly. But he had his purposes. And then, as Graham put all this section together, and we come to the end of the section, we turn and move into chapter 9. By the way, Matthew didn't write chapter 9, and you know what I mean by saying that, don't you? The chapters are a 13th century addition to the Bible just so that you can find your way around it. The whole passage just is meant to be read on. So although we're going into a new chapter, it's not a new chapter, it's still the same idea. Remember, words that demonstrate themselves in works. Jesus heals the paralytic. Two weeks before my uh, daughter-in-law died, she'd come to the point of understanding that she was going to die. And the only full and final healing, hear this in the context of Tuesday, the only full and final healing for a Christian is the near presence of Jesus. You with me? The only full and final healing for a Christian is the near presence of Jesus. God does sovereignly act. God does do remarkable things. Sometimes they're signs of the kingdom. They're signs of the works of Jesus. They point to the kingdom, but that's what they are. So this was a passage that Claire wanted to talk to me about two weeks, as I say, before she died. Because she'd by then come very much to accept the fact that Jesus was going to take her into his near presence, which he did on Easter Sunday. She had a fine brain, and I was writing my master's degree on healing in the African church, and she wanted to talk to me because she had found this passage, ironically, And so we talked about the fact, which is the greater miracle 
the fact that God can and does heal, or the fact that God forgives sin. That's another piece of homework for you. Which is the greater miracle, that God heals or that God forgives sin? Well, I love the way the message puts it because both are actually incredible miracles. One's a miracle of time, which is the healing, and it's part of the ministry. It's very interesting. I think if any of us are sick, the first person we go to see is our doctor, isn't it? In the third world, the first person you go to see when you're sick is your pastor, which is interesting. You may want to think about that too. So the miracle is forgiveness of sins, because that's the eternal. And the fact that God has, as Alan said very clearly at the beginning, has dealt with my sin, those things that separate me from him, is absolutely wonderful. I know, I know people like to see miracles. They're very human. And I've seen a significant number myself. And it does pander to the human. And it does pander to the fact that our faith needs to grow so much. Because just show me, Lord, just show me, and I'll believe And it's exactly the opposite way. I remember Donovan saying that. Exactly the opposite way you believe to understand and to experience. Not the other way around. If I experience, I'll believe. No, it doesn't work that way around. It works the opposite way around. So time is gone. I have done appalling injustice to the text. I will forgive myself. I have to. I've been trying to say to you... One thing, one thing, just one thing. You are a disciple. Well, you are if you choose to be. You do have a choice about that. And it's not a choice you make once and for all. Well, you should make that all, and that's actually what we do in baptism. Jesus, I'm yours forever. Remember taking my baptismal vows as a 15-year-old and I wish I'd kept them perfectly. But if you are a disciple of his, here in Bridge North and wherever else God may take you, you need to remember, and I do too, very deeply, that your words and your works should measure. If they don't, They're not hearing what you say.